Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to the Actus Podcast, Talking CDI. The Actus Podcast is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bring you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and Actus. Today's featured Actus solution is Imagine 2022 Actus Conference. We ask you to imagine the possibilities and join your CDI peers in Orlando May 2nd through 5th at the Gaylord Palms Resort and Convention Center. I think we're all could use a little magic in our lives um, as we hopefully are winding down the pandemic here. And we've got a great program in store for you. Um, we did run a successful live event back in October. We're very optimistic we can, we're going to do the same this year. We've got a wonderful lineup of speakers, a couple of which are going to be featured on today's program. So I'm looking forward to previewing their session a bit. But again, great spot. We've got shuttle buses running to the Disney theme parks. If that's your speed, it, I know it is mine. And I'm uh, really looking forward to the May, and I hope you are as well. All right, so my name is Brian Murphy, Director of Actus, the Association of Clinical Documentation Integrity Specialists, and I'm, of course, your host for today's program, Coagulopathy, a Multidisciplinary Concern. I'm, I'm joined today by my familiar co-host, Sharm Brody. You all know Sharm, I believe, but for those maybe just joining us today, she's an instructor for our CDI boot camps, subject matter expert for Actus. She has more than 35 years in the healthcare industry, doing consulting, program auditing, implementing CDI departments back in the day. Um, now she's deep involved with Actus on a regulatory committee, certification committees. Um, just thrilled to have her back on the show. So welcome, Charm. Thank you, Brian. It is fabulous to be here. Absolutely. Okay, next I'd like to introduce our guest for today. Um, so we have two new guests that are making their first appearance on the show. We have with us uh, Lynn Miller. Uh, Dr. Miller is Director of Education at Acuity in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. Dr. Miller is a board certified adult and pediatric neurosurgeon. We were just hearing a little bit about her background before the show, it's fascinating. She holds fellowship status in the American College of Osteopathic Surgeons and board certification in integrative medicine, working toward her fellowship status in wilderness medicine. Uh, prior to joining Acuity, she developed and implemented educational events and programs within academic arenas, medical facilities, and medical device corporations. I want to welcome you to the show, Dr. Miller. Thank you very much for having me. All right. And uh, joining her today is Kelly Burns. Uh, Kelly is education analyst, also with Acuity in Mount Laurel. Uh, she serves there as a subject matter expert in medical coding and RevCycle management, in addition to spearheading educational offerings for client coders. There's a wonderful background in HIM and physician-directed content development. Um, very pleased to have her on the show as well. So welcome to the program, Kelly. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Looking forward to the topic. All right, we're going to start, as we always do, with a poll question related to today's topic. I'm going to go ahead and pull that up here in just a moment. All right. So today we are asking you, um, for those that aren't with for those that aren't with us live today, um, and you can't see this question, it reads. How much effort does it take for your organization to properly report coagulopathy? Uh, would you describe the effort as little? Usually it's documented and coded pretty well. Uh, maybe it takes some effort, which I'll leave that up to you what that means, but 
some examples are maybe you need to do additional education, maybe there's some queries that are needed. Would you describe it as considerable? Is it hard to capture, maybe frequently denied? Not applicable or other are your other choices. So again, we're asking folks today, how much effort does it take for your organization to properly report coagulopathy? Would you describe it as, as little effort, some effort, considerable effort, not applicable for those that aren't in this setting or aren't currently in CDI or other? All right, we've got about two thirds of our audience that have voted. So I'm gonna go ahead and close this out and then we will come back to the poll results in just a few minutes. All right, as I mentioned, Dr. Lynn Miller and Kelly Burns are our guests today. Um, thanks for coming to the program, guys. And you know, uh, as I mentioned at the outset of the show, we're kicking off a series of shows highlighting some of the sessions that we're offering at the at the Actus Conference. This is our, of course, the biggest gathering of CDI professionals nationwide. We're running the Actus Conference since 08, and um, we want to give people today a little bit of a taste of what's in store without without giving away everything. <laughs> uh, but you guys have, I was really impressed with the submission that, uh, that you guys put in and it's called, of course, the title of today's show, Coagulopathy, a Multidisciplinary Concern. This is going to be in our popular clinical encoding track. Um, and you'll get the full, the full program if you come to the conference. But today we're going to take some pieces of that and talk about this, this topic and, and hopefully shed some light for our listeners. So I thought we could start with really just some basic definitions. So what is coagulopathy and, and really how do you see it typically manifest in a patient? Um, Dr. Mill, do we want to start with you and then bounce it back to Kelly? Or... Sure, I can take this one. So yeah. in, in my opinion, coagulopathy is often incorrectly assumed to be a problem with clotting, like increased risk of bleeding, usually due to impaired clot formation. But as I'm sure you're aware, really, it's any derangement of hemostasis which is the true definition of coagulopathy. And this means that both excessive bleeding and clotting could be included. Particularly, for example, the hypercoagulable state is often forgotten. As far as the manifestations, well, they're not only actual bleeding, but also the risk of developing a bleed and the like slowed flow velocity leading to the blood vessel lumen itself being narrowed or clot formation. Think of pulmonary embolisms or DVTs or strokes, just as examples. All right, hmm. appreciate that. Yeah, that that's actually, haven't heard it said that quite that way. Uh, I actually got a chance to look at your presentation and I really liked it. You had in uh, a section about tips about co combing through the chart for clinical evidence or clinical indicators for the condition coagulopathy. Um, any best practice that you would like to share um, and lab values as far as going over lab values, any advice? You know, Sharm, that's really a tough one. I feel like coagulopathy in general is a hard diagnosis to capture unless you're sitting there looking at the patient bleeding. Um, so I think the challenge relevant to lab analysis specifically is the lack of a single abnormality or really any abnormality that may be capturable. So the chart review requires the reviewer to recognize individual and really sometimes rare labs that were ordered and might be abnormal. 
some of them they may have never even come across in their training. They then have to correlate that information to a possible diagnosis. So understanding the extrinsic and the intrinsic pathway of coagulation really isn't enough. That's the basic thing that we learn, but you have to look at that big picture. Let's, let's take an example of like where a doctor includes the word anticoagulated in his assessment and plan. In that situation, knowing what anticoagulation is would be the key for your laboratory search and how you're going through the chart, but it may have a delayed effect on labs. And really, once treatment begins, there may not be any lab abnormalities. So looking at the medication list may give you a clue. So not only the labs, but also the meds. And once the medication is known, you then have to scour the chart for a lab trend that may be associated with that medication. And it, I think it gets more complicated if we think about, for example, you know, you're not supposed to query off of a single lab abnormality usually, and that's what we're taught. But in the case of coagulopathy, the patient may be discharged after a single confirmation of the labs being abnormal, say when they're started on heparin or Coumadin. And if the medication is not associated with the abnormalities of common labs that are ordered, we may not see any lab values that are abnormal. So the reviewer could query for coagulopathy just based on that wording of anticoagulated in the physician's assessment and plan comment. The CDI specialist might also know various specific factors that could be abnormal that would prompt that query or prompt that question to the physician like clot formation and dissolution or nuances of the hypercoagulable state. I always like when I do my teaching to um, use an example of a truck driver and a pregnant woman. So let's imagine a 55-year-old truck driver who has, of course, that sedentary professional position and that non-ideal dietary habits on the road. And he has different risk factors than that active 25-year-old pregnant woman. But both chart reviews have to focus on the hypercoagulable state, and it makes it a challenge for the reviewer. So starting off with the labs and then understanding what they mean or looking them up, but also knowing that hypercoagulable state and that you know, risk factors that might come into play would help. And in the example I just gave, both may have presented with a DVT and neither may have had abnormal labs. So when I, when I teach this as an education, I like to focus on the labs, but then take a step back and look at that big picture, looking at the history and the situation and even social determinants of health, which Kelly, I guess, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I would say to that point, when we have the benefit of reviewing the chart post-discharge, we have even more context to the patient's admission and medical history. And that helps the CDI make those connections from the lab values to the overall picture. It's good. Right. Thank you. That is a good case of when only one lab value. I like that. Thank you. No problem. It can be a challenge sometimes looking through, especially when we have those, I don't know, set mindsets of how to review a chart. Mm -hmm. Agree completely. And even seeing the term anticoagulant, you know, that might, that should be enough to prompt a question, but um, well, I don't want to steal Sharon's thunder. We're going to talk a little bit about potential denials and stuff down the line here. But, you know, I, I also was able to take a look at your presentation. That's one of the benefits of being the ACTUS director and having <laughs> access to these materials behind the scenes. But um, I really liked what you guys are doing uh, in your presentation about sort of 
looking at coagulopathy disorders and how they differ across the various specialties. You know, you have like in there ne urology, neurosurgery, which I know is a little bit in your background, Dr. Miller, but uh, could you explain and maybe walk us through, uh, you're going to cover all this at, again in May, but like maybe one service line and, and its specific issues with this diagnosis, just as an example for our audience. Sure. I think the obvious example would be a stroke or a GI bleed. Those are by far the most common coagulation pathologies. But, you know, just for the sake of getting your listeners to think about things, let's pick on neurosurgery. So your treating clinical team focuses on a task at hand and they forget to look at that true clinical picture and take that step back. And sometimes that's what you need to do in order to capture some of these not obscure, but not routine run-of-the-mill diagnoses. So let's, I like to use examples. Let's look at that patient who has a history of strokes and is on a long-term anticoagulation. Let's say a Pixaban, for example, and brand name Eloquist. So the patient trips and falls, and now they present sleepy. Everyone's scurrying around in the middle of the ER, and the patient's off to CT, and the nurse is pulling labs, and the, the assistant or another nurse is collecting history from the family and the doc is trying to get in the orders. And finally, the clinician gets that result of the CT and there's an intracranial hemorrhage. Well, everything goes through his head. Do we reverse that apixaban? Do we not? Is the bleed life-threatening, which would warrant the reversal? Do we need to go to the OR? There's a lot of commotion in the middle of the emergency room at that point. And timing matters for both the reversal and the surgical excuse me, the surgical decision. So kind of moving forward, the patient's admission orders are done, they're completed, the HMP is done, and the HMP lists intracranial hemorrhage, altered mental status, and a history of CVA. And I start to cry because what happened to that long-term use of anticoagulant? What happened to the reason of the stroke, which was that genetic hypercoagulable state? In all the commotion surrounding that immediate critical decision-making of this patient, the key factors were left out, and it's time for our CDI team to shine. Understanding that they need to review the entire patient's chart and the need to step past the obvious straightforward diagnosis that was in that H&P is important, and it, it also serves as the base of having a CDI that has a strong clinical background knowledge in order to, to be able to capture that coagulopathy. And a great example. Yeah. Go ahead, Kelly. Oh, I was just going to say, we talk about this type of case a lot. And in terms of coding, uh, the long-term use of anticoagulants, that Z7901 code would be applicable. But if the clinician links the bleed to the anticoagulant, or if the CDI queries for the cause and effect, then we also add that D6832 code for hemorrhagic disorder due to extrinsic circulating anticoagulants and the T-code for the adverse effect of the anticoagulants. And then we need to uh, the specificity of why the patient has the hypercoagulable state, particularly if it's genetic in the example that Dr. Miller gave, so we can apply the code for the other primary thrombophilia, the D6859. And then part of this, the discussions we have is if in this example, the reason the patient had the hypercoagulable state wasn't genetic, then we would be looking for the code for other thrombophilia, D6869, <laughs> 
or a secondary hypercoagulable state. And we can't assume this just because a patient's on an anticoagulant. So this is where that documentation and insightful reviews by the CDI team are so important. Being able to capture these codes not only impacts the case from a financial standpoint, but more importantly, it capture, captures the complexity of the patient's admission, which is really what we're looking at. Mm -hmm. Wow, That's like tough. that answer. I <laughs> like that answer. That was great. Okay, so after saying that and giving us the, I can tell you, just learn something um, pretty big. What is, you, in your opinion, what is the greatest cause for error when reporting this condition? I mean, I think just by listening to what you just said, I know, but is it because the documentation is lacking? Um, is it because people aren't looking for the cause and effect? Should we get a little bit more aggressive with with making sure that the complexity of this patient is uh, within the medical record? You know, Kelly, I'm sure you have a lot to say on this, but I I feel like from a clinical point, the problem is all in the wording, Charm. Okay. I think we as physicians and providers, we, we don't learn about codable verbiage in medical school. And so the documentation doesn't come naturally and we forget to link the specificity we, we forget to even use the word coagulopathy. We use anticoagulated or you know, starting Coumadin as opposed to actually capturing that diagnosis. And so I think it's a challenge for the CDI team because it translates into them having to piece together seemingly random parts of the chart to derive at the coagulopathy diagnosis. I don't know, Kelly, what about the coding part of things? Yeah, agreed. It, there's a challenge from the coding side too. We have the coding clinics that guide us, of course, but you can't cover all the scenarios. And with coagulopathy, there are a lot of scenarios. Um, we talk a lot about in, this, um, in our group, the code R791 for abnormal coagulation profile. And the definition is the lab values being outside the quote normal range, but it doesn't specifically clarify that the normal range for a patient on Coumadin is the therapeutic range. So then do we apply this code to all patients on Coumadin? And the consensus among our coders is no, and the R791 refers to the abnormal PT or PTT outside the expected range. But that's just one example of where a clinician may interpret that code differently than how a coder would apply it. And really that's why documenting, reviewing, and coding in this area could be so nuanced. And I always find the discussions on the ACTUS forms really helpful because it's clear there are a lot of different interpretations of the use and sequencing of these coagulopathy codes. Thank you. That's, can I just say, I like that you mentioned the forum. So I think that's a great place for people to go and have people oh, like I you go involved. A lot. <laughs> good. Glad to hear that. I, I actually think that that's one of the reasons we chose this topic for the May conference when I was looking at different presentation options to apply as a speaker. I feel like this, every time we talk to a different individual, there's no consensus on a lot of the importance surrounding coagulopathy. Yeah, that's great. We haven't had this topic on the podium, at least in a dedicated manner like you guys are covering it. You covered a ton today which was great for our audience um i can tell you for those that those that are maybe on the fence about coming to actus in may you should go because i've seen the presentation there's, there's a lot more that that uh, dr miller and kelly will be covering uh, in the session but um i guess just to wrap up here before we get into our other segments of the show anything else that um you're excited to either present in your session um but also 
I, I we were just chatting before the show, I believe, if I heard this correctly, this will be your first Actus conference. So I'm, I'm wondering what you're excited to or maybe looking forward to, the networking, the learning. Maybe it's going to Orlando in the uh, middle of, uh, well, it's the winter. <laughs> It'll be May by then, but thinking about Orlando when it's still winter, um, anything that uh, that you're excited about with the conference? I'm really excited about the networking part of things. You know, I'm I'm new to the uh, professional documentation world coming from the purely clinical world. When I joined as the director of education for Acuity, I really don't have a collegial base of physician advisors or CDIT members that um, I can bounce ideas off of. And so within Acuity, I'm developing my own family, but it would be nice to have colleagues around the nation that I can bounce ideas off of. So I'm I'm really looking forward to the collaboration that is ideal in these kind of conferences so I can start making those connections. Yeah, you'll find them there. That's for sure. That's for sure. <laughs> people, people are not shy, typically, at the conference. <laughs> Kelly, anything from your perspective? Oh, I echo what Dr. Miller said. It's been a really hard two years for everyone, particularly all our healthcare colleagues. So it'll be great to interact in person with the ACTUS attendees and talk about the coding challenges we all have. Um, it's just peer-to-peer -peer interactions are so invaluable. And I can say it's 22 degrees in uh, Connecticut right now. So thinking about <laughs> having them in sunny Florida right now, <laughs> is a, it doesn't hurt either. Yeah, it's nice. Well, <laughs> really appreciate the great conversation today on a, on a complicated clinical topic. This was um, a wonderful program. I am gonna share our poll results for our audience. Um, for those, again, that are listening via the podcast, we're asked today, how much effort does it take for your organization to properly report coagulopathy? We got a fortunate 18% that say little effort. It's usually documented and coded well. But that leaves most of our folks that either 60% are saying some effort, education and queries are needed, 15% describe it as considerable effort, hard to capture and or uh, frequently denied. And then we have 5% not applicable and 2% other. So um, do either of you have any thoughts on the poll results? Anything surprise you here? Any of those percentages would surprise or, or kind of what you thought, what you might expect? I think that um, I, I wonder if you actually dive into when they do feel like it's being documented well, if the opportunity exists that is not being recognized. That's what I'm finding when I'm reviewing seemingly um, coagulopathy naive charts. I don't know if that's a word, but um, you know, we I look at a case and I'm like, the coagulopathy wasn't documented. I wonder why, and in truth, it should have been. So I wonder if these poll results suggest, particularly with the little effort and usually documented, if there's missed opportunity there. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, anything else to add, Kelly? Yeah, and to go back to Sharm's point before, um, with the most of the audience indicating that some education is uh, needed around that, I wonder, again, if we took a deeper dive into it, what the education is, is it the linking the cause and effect? Is it, um, you know, really understanding the differences between how to apply these codes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, good point there. Well, unfortunately, we only have the five poll options here, but yeah, there's there's more to dig into there. All right, 
at this point, we're going to jump to our In the News segment. So In the News is a regular segment of our show featuring the latest industry updates and news relevant to the CI profession and Actus. Today, I want to use the news segment to talk about our 2021 CDI salary survey. So this is our, by far and away, our most popular annual report. Um, we've got some great data to share. If you have not yet seen our salary survey, it's available on the Actus website. It's underneath, um, gosh, it's under resources, if I'm correct here. I shouldn't have drilled into it before the show because it's it's floating out there somewhere. Uh, here it is, excuse me, thought leadership surveys. You will find it right there on the website. Um, we had more than 900 folks take the survey, so we, we feel pretty confident about the data in here. Um, and I think it's a great story. You know, there's a little bit of a blurb here. The entire survey can be found if you just click download and, and view it. Multi-page survey, we've got a couple folks that have weighed in on it and sort of lent some analysis to the data. Uh, but it is showing us that, uh, so for last year, uh, the largest portion of our survey respondents, so more than 19%, reported making in the 90 to 99,000 annual uh, salary range, which is up from last year. We only had about 16.8% of respondents in that category. And you can see the next largest bucket decreased, so we're, we're, that, that correlates strongly to a salary increase for folks. Uh, is, and also the highest earning brackets, so those brackets of 100K or more per year rose by over five percentage points and now make up 42% uh, of respondents as opposed to 37% in 2020 and prior years. Um, Kerry Seekirker, one of our analysts, said this is a great opportunity for folks to take a look at the survey data, You know, especially if you're in a leadership role, making sure that you're paying your staff well. It's getting increasingly complex, I think, in this environment when so many folks are remote to compare salary to salary. You know, if you think about your CDI specialist in Mississippi and Alabama trying to compare salaries with someone on the West Coast, that's going to be a challenge. Um, but we actually break a lot of that data down in the survey. Let me go back to it here. This is a little bit of a um, I know this is too small, but I'm just going to, we, we, we do break it down by job title, some of the salary survey data. Uh, we look at year over year trends, and there's a lot more in here to, to look at. Um, what were some of the other ones I want to mention? Oh, we, we also have it by region. So you can compare your salary with someone who's in a similar uh, region of the country, which is probably a more apt comparison. Uh, here we go, yeah, by Northeast, for example, by Pacific, and on and on. You can see how your salary matches up. So a lot of great data. Recommend, if you haven't checked out the survey data yet, to please do so. Curious, um, Kelly or, or, or Dr. Miller, do you have any, any thoughts on the salary survey data? Have you had a chance to look at this yet or, or anything about the broad trend of some uptick in salary? Yeah, no, I think this is, um, it's really good to see um, the pandemic took such a toll on the healthcare industry, and it's really good to see that adjustments are being made to reflect all the hard work the CDIs are doing and all the expertise they bring to this new challenging environment. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really think the CDI industry as a whole struggles with overlooked value. The clinical documentation integrity is at the heart of Acuity's business model, but that's not really the case everywhere. 
And I really hope that these rising trends are the beginning of hospitals recognizing the advantages of a strong CDI department. Mm -hmm. Great point. And you know, it's not all sunshine and roses here. There, if you look at, we, we do run a lot of the uh, open-ended responses. There were some complaints about maybe not feeling fairly compensated, especially in regards to um, folks in other hospitals or uh, for example, clinical bedside nurses, uh, maybe some lack of um, uh, hospital resources being dedicated to like certification or opportunities like attending the conference. So um, yeah, there, there, there were the, the responses are a little bit mixed there in terms of open-ended, but I would say the broad picture is looking good and, and agreed that this is a critical position for for healthcare today. And um, it's it is encouraging though to see that hospitals are stepping up and and compensating their CDI professionals better overall. I would agree. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I'm going to just hop back here quickly to our uh, Actus update. This is a regular segment featuring the latest news on what's going on inside of Actus. I'm talking a lot today about um, the conference coming up in May. Um, you know, we have as part of that a panel session on day two, which we're calling uh, Talking CDI, No Punches Pulled. <laughs> Um, we've got three opinionated panelists who will be joining us for this session. We're asking some questions from our Actus members that we we want these this panel to address. So we we all we know we all like honest talk. That's part of the reason why I started the podcast. We need more of it in the profession, I think. So if you have any questions you would like to put to this panel, we um, you can drop them in the chat here in the last minutes of the show, or you can send me an email at bmurphy@actus.org going to use this to pose some questions to our conference panelists and we can't promise we'll use them all but we'll definitely use some in what should be an interesting and provocative and maybe fun conversation as well so a lot of good conference stuff coming up and again if you guys have any questions you want to pose to this panel for a talking cdi special session send me an email or drop it here in the chat i'd love to see it thank you for having us brian and charm yeah, oh, thank welcome. you. We're, we're going to wrap up here. So again, thanks everyone for joining us today. We're going to be back here again in two weeks on Wednesday, March 2nd for our next show, which is HCC's queries and the meteoric rise of telemedicine encounters. Next week also happens to be our 200th show. Um, so who knows what surprises we'll have in store for you all. It should be a good one. Um, as we head out, I just I have one last thing to say. I, I learned just this morning of the passing of uh, Deborah Hale. Deb Hale is with ACS. She has been a prior speaker at our conference. She was a um, really a, a thought leader in the industry. Wonderful. Uh, she she knew a lot about, for example, observation, medical coding, CDI. Was a subject matter expert in particular in observation and medical necessity and has spoke at our program before. I just learned of her passing and um, our thoughts and prayers go out to, to Deborah Hale and all of her colleagues at ACS. So with that, we're going to wrap up and we will see you back here again in two weeks, everyone. Take care now.